Psalm 128, and I'd like to begin by reading this brief psalm, and then praying and asking the Lord's guidance and help as we study His Word together. So let's read Psalm 128. You can follow along with me there as I read. It begins, A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Yahweh bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today again, as we, as we often do, for giving us your word. Lord, you have spoken these words. You have breathed them out through the pen of the psalmist. They are your words. And we thank you for the truth that you have revealed. Lord, you don't uh, speak to us in an audible voice. You speak to us very clearly and very surely in your word. We thank you for that. And I pray this morning that you would, uh, would use these words in Psalm 128 by the power of your Spirit who ministers in our hearts, that you would Cause us to see and know you. Cause us to see and know the truth. That you would incline our hearts not just to hear the words, but to submit to the truth and be obedient to it. Lord, I pray that you would transform us, transform our lives, and glorify yourself. And we thank you for that. I pray that you'd use me as I speak to be your instrument. That your word would be very clear today and nothing would detract from it. We thank you for this privilege and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we look at Psalm 128, of course, it follows on the heels of Psalm 127, which we were looking at the last two weeks. But these two psalms really make quite a pair. It seems very clear that they belong together side by side, although they were written by different authors. And it's possible but we don't know for sure, but it's possible that they were separated by many years. We know they're different authors because Psalm 127 was written by Solomon. In Psalm 128, we don't have an author given to us. And so these two different psalms, and yet both of them deal with some similar themes. They deal with the blessings of family and the fruit of hard work. They contain the word blessed or happy. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, in Psalm 127, it said that the man is blessed or happy who has his quiver full of sons in his youth. Here in Psalm 128, there are a whole variety of blessings that accompany the man who fears Yahweh. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating. Happy is a valid translation of this word. I don't want to minimize that or suggest it's improper. But I think our modern idea of this word happy really doesn't convey the full sense of this word in these verses. When it speaks here about the man being happy or blessed, it's referring, more, it's referring to more than just having a positive mental state, just feeling good about life. It speaks of the joy that comes from knowing that you are right with God. Anybody, can anybody appreciate that this morning? The simple joy of knowing that you are right with God. I'm not saying that you're sinless, but the, the, the knowing that you are not living in rebellion against God. There's a, a, a joy that accompanies that knowledge. And that's what the psalmist is speaking here when he says, blessed or happy is the man. He says, this man knows that he's right with God. And that's what brings joy to his heart. And there's another aspect of it, which is knowing that the good things that you enjoy have come down to you from heaven. That knowledge is a transformative knowledge. 
In Psalm 127, Solomon emphasized that everything good ultimately comes from Yahweh. That really is kind of the theme of Psalm 127. It's like he's saying to us this, you need to remember something, that everything good that happens and everything good that you have, it doesn't come from you, it comes from the Lord. Remember that. That's like a, square, a foundation stone. Keep yourself grounded on that principle. Anything good you enjoy in this life, it came from God. So enjoy it, because God gave it to you. But remember, it came from Him. So enjoy it in that context. Now this psalm, the focus is slightly different, though it's still dealing with the same basic idea. But the focus here in this psalm is how you and I are to receive those heavenly gifts. What role do we play? Psalm 127, Solomon says, don't forget, everything good comes from God, right? If the Lord doesn't build the house, you're laboring in vain to build it, right? So don't don't waste your time building by ignoring God. That's Psalm 127. Psalm 128 says, okay, so we already told you, don't waste your time building by ignoring God, so focus on God, but then what are you supposed to do? Well, Psalm 128 kind of deals with that, I think. Now, I want you to notice that there are two qualifications given by the psalmist here in order to receive the blessings of heaven on earth. And I don't think I'm overstating that because I think that's kind of the point. These good things are things that come from God, therefore they are heavenly. James says this, right? Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from... Anybody know what that verse says? From where? From above. Right? From where our Father sits. That's what James says. That means, by definition, they're heavenly blessings. But they're enjoyed here on earth. So, you know, we like to say that. It's a little slice of heaven on earth. Well, that's what this is about. Psalm 127. Psalm 128. These things that that God gives us, they are intended to be heavenly blessings that we experience here on earth. How do we do that? What are the qualifications necessary in order for us to experience this? Notice what he says there in the first verse. Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. These are the two requirements. Fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And these these are not new or unusual. I mean, when I read that to you, you go, well, yeah. How many times have we read that before? I mean, think about that, right? Um, I, but, but here's the thing. The familiarity of these, notwithstanding, they present some challenges to us. I think that the expression, the fear of Yahweh, or when we're commanded to fear Yahweh, as we are here, blessed is the one who fears Yahweh. These are common commands in Scripture, common descriptions, common statements in Scripture. And because they're so common, we might read past them quickly, without stopping to think about what they actually mean. Right? What does it mean to fear the Lord, to fear Yahweh? Now, if you just do a quick search, I did this on my computer this week, just do a quick search of that expression, fear Yahweh. I didn't even look for a specific phrase. Just look for those two terms, fear and Yahweh, or fear and Lord in the same sentence. And then just kind of scan through the Bible verses, and it comes up with a lot of them. But you see a lot of things that are, that are repeated. I'll share a few examples. Leviticus 19.32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am Yahweh. I thought some of you might like that verse, if it applies to you, and if you can admit that it applies to you, but I'm not going any further down that road, okay? Um, but... It, but he says, right, he says, you know, honor the, the aged and fear the Lord. Why? Because I am Yahweh. I am the eternally existing one. Deuteronomy 12, uh, 10, verse 12. And now Israel, I like this one a lot. What does Yahweh your God require of you? That's good to know. What does God expect of you, Israel? Here's what he says. <coughs> but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. I, I was, again, I mentioned already that, that Ari and I were having conversation before the service 
Uh, she came in early to help get, you know, get the tech stuff set up and, and uh, appreciate her help with all that. Very thankful for Aria. Uh, these last several weeks, she's been helping out with that. So you sh if, you've, if you've benefited from any of the stream services, you should say something to her uh, because she's, I'm, I'm embarrassing her, but she's, she's helped out with that. But we were talking about this a little bit about the, the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Right? Well, Deuteronomy 10, 12, God says here, you want to know what the will of God is for you? It's this. And he says, he, it's in the form of a question. What does Yahweh your God require of you but to do this? So in other words, nothing other than this. This is the will of God, container, right? Everything about the will of God is contained in this verse for the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And what is it supposed to do? Fear Yahweh and walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Keep his commandments. That's the will of God. By the way, I would contend it probably hasn't really changed. If this is the will of God for Israel, I think we see as, as, we, as we look through the rest of Scripture that this is God's will for us too. So if you say, well, I don't know what God's will is for me. Yeah, you do. Go back and read Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now you know God's will. Well, that doesn't answer my question. I know, but that's, that's the answer to the question. You've got to ask the right question. So it probably means you're not asking the right question, which is why that doesn't seem to fit. Okay? Totally separate discussion. Totally another message for another day. But this is important. Look at what else he says. Okay? Uh, Joshua 24 and verse 14. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh. Serve him with insincerity and truth. Or 1 Samuel 12, 24. Samuel there is challenging the nation of Israel. And here's what he says. Only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. And of course, most of us are familiar with Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10, both of which say the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So this is a message that is all throughout the Scripture especially throughout the Old Testament. It's repeated dozens of times. Fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh. Do you ever stop to wonder what exactly is the fear of the Lord? You ever take any time to think about that when you've been reading through your Bible and stop and go, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, a lot of times when we do that, we have a tendency to try to soften the word fear because we're not really comfortable saying, fear God, fear the Lord. I mean, we say it, but we kind of, in our minds, we go, fear, but don't be afraid. Right? Anybody, anybody relate to that at all? Or have you come across that at all? Okay, fear, but don't be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid of him. He loves you. He wants you to love him. So fear, but don't be afraid. Do you see a problem with that? I do. We, we, we say, well, when, when the Bible says fear the Lord, it doesn't mean to be scared of Him. I think we do a disservice to the word fear and also to the word of God when we do that. And certainly, I think, then also to God Himself. Let me explain what I mean. William Wilson, in his word book of the Old Testament, he says he defines Hebrew, this Hebrew word here, fear, as literally to fear from an apprehension of danger and a sense of our own weakness. So when the psalmist says, blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, blessed is the man who recognizes that in Yahweh there is inherent danger. When the Bible says that we are to fear the Lord, it certainly includes the idea of having awe and reverence for Him. But if we're going to be honest... We've got to admit that it also includes, fundamentally includes the idea that when we come into the presence of God, there is great danger there. And if you look throughout the Bible, and you're going to be honest with your Bible study, you're going to see, you're going to have to admit that throughout the Bible, when anyone has a direct encounter with God, their response is generally to fall down on the ground as if they were dead. And not out of some elaborate show of respect. I'll give you an example of that. Ezekiel chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. Uh, we're not going to take time to go through it. We just read that fairly recently in our chronological Bible reading schedule. It's on your calendar um, that we've been going through. 
But in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet sees an amazing vision of the throne of Yahweh coming down from heaven down to earth. It's an amazing vision. The whole chapter of of Ezekiel chapter 1. Read it and just try to imagine. Take the time. We we did this, the, the, the kids and I. And Pauletta, we were sitting around the table after breakfast and reading it. And, and every few verses, I'd stop and go, okay, now let's try and picture what we're seeing here. And we'd kind of walk through it, try to work through it. Because Ezekiel's just writing what he sees, just describing it. It's amazing. But he gives us this incredible description. And here's what we read at the end of the chapter. Here's what Ezekiel says. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. That was Ezekiel's response to seeing the throne of God come down out of heaven to earth. He fell down on his face. And he says in the very first verse of chapter 2, the very next verse, he couldn't stand up until the Spirit of God entered him and lifted him up to stand. He was unable to stand in the presence of God. The point is this. There is something about God which both attracts us in amazement and repels us in abject terror. The thought of this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy God and coming into His presence ought to terrify us to our very heart. To come into His presence as a sinful creature is to place oneself in great jeopardy. That's the sense that we ought to have about God. Is it any wonder when Isaiah saw a vision of Yahweh, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Again, he wasn't just being pious. He wasn't just trying to think of something good to say in the moment. That's what Peter did when he saw Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. He kind of stuck it, you know, put his foot in his mouth. Isaiah, is, he's broken seeing God. So right here at the beginning of Psalm 128, we have a point of departure. I would say it's a very dark, thick, black line drawn in permanent marker that separates those who are of this world and those who are truly Christian, truly believers. What is the separation point? Well, James Boyce puts it very plainly. He says it this way. God must be taken seriously. He must not be trifled with. He must be, as he actually is, the center of everything we are, everything we think, or everything we aspire to do. This is, I think, at the very least, what it means to fear Yahweh. We have to take Him seriously. We must not trifle with Him. He must be the very center of everything we think and are and do. And I think it means more than that. Because to to fear the Lord also involves a heart of worship. But again, what does it mean to worship? Well, worship means to ascribe to God the weight and the worth which He is due. So let's kind of put this all in, in, in one, try to put this all together here. When the psalmist says the man is blessed who fears Yahweh, he is speaking of a man or a woman who knows who God is, who who, who understands His greatness and His glory, and who submits to Him as Lord. Lord of His desires, attitudes, and ambitions, and who recognizes that He is utterly unworthy to even come into the presence of such a high and holy person as Yahweh. Blessed is the man who takes the Lord so seriously that he recognizes he is unworthy to come into his presence. Blessed is the woman who takes God so seriously that she submits her own desires and attitudes and thoughts and imaginations to him. That's another way of saying what the psalmist says here. Blessed is the man or the woman who fears Yahweh. Now, the question, of course, I said that that the person who fears Yahweh knows Him, knows who He is, knows His greatness and His glory. So a question we might follow that up with is, how do we find that knowledge, right? How do we know this God? 
Well, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that every person living on this planet has seen and understood some measure of God's greatness and His power. Right? Paul says that these things about God, His invisible nature, and his, or his, his, his invisible power and His divine nature are clearly seen, Paul says, by the things that are made. That is, the creatures, the people. So Paul says everybody sees it. Everybody knows God's glory and God's power. See, here's why I said everybody knows and really kind of meets the first qualification to fear the Lord. Because we all know the greatness and the glory of God. Paul says that's evident in creation. It's, it's all around us. The problem is, Paul goes on to explain this in Romans chapter 1 very clearly. The problem is that instead of glorifying God, what do we do? He says we, we worship something else. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and we, and we serve the creature instead of the creator. That's what we do in our natural state. We come to the awareness of, the, of, of who God is. We see His glory and His majesty, but we don't fear Him. We don't treat Him as He deserves. We don't take Him seriously. Do you think, I, I mean, I, and I don't, want to, I don't want to enter into a political discussion here at all. Everything is politicized these days. But do you think that the people who are burning down stores and destroying and looting and, and, and murdering other people, because that has been going on the last few days in our country, do you think that those people fear the Lord? Do you think that they are taking God seriously at all? Do you think that they are not trifling with Him? When they consider that they look at the world around them and it is so evident that God exists. It is so evident that He is all-powerful. It is so evident that He is a creator. Their actions, I think, demonstrate to us very, very clearly that, that as a result of seeing that truth, our tendency is to reject it. Not to fear the Lord, but to take Him lightly. To trifle with Him. The world does not tremble at the thought of a holy God who sits in judgment. They deny His right to judge. They scoff at the idea that His way is the only right way. I mean, we, we're living in a society today that's, that's built on this idea that there is no such thing as one right way. That the whole concept of a right and wrong way is silly. I mean, we have an entire society built on this concept that mocks the power and the judgment of God. If you stop for too long to think about that, it will terrify you. Because it makes you realize this society that we're living in today is begging for judgment. Here's the thing. Psalm 127 made it very clear that when you build your life apart from the Lord, whatever you're building is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It's worse than that. It's idolatrous. And that means if you will not fear Him, you will not have any of the blessings of God in your life you won't receive the blessings and the goodness of God in your life. Now, there's more. That, by the way, this, I said there were two qualifications. This is only the first one. Fear the Lord. Because the second qualification goes along with the first right there in verse 1. Right? Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His ways. Right? This is the second qualification. The testimony of the Bible is very, very clear on this point as well. The first one leads to the second. In other words, when we fear the Lord, that leads us to walk in His ways. What does it mean to walk in His ways? Well, 
it surely means to live according to his commands. We already pointed this out in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. What does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. You see how fearing the Lord and living according to his commandments, fearing the Lord and obeying him, go hand in hand. In fact, as I say, fearing the Lord leads to obeying the Lord. These two things go together. When you fear the Lord in your heart, it has a definite impact on your behavior. It has a transformative impact on your way of life. And some of you who were saved later in life, some of you who were saved later in life, I know because I've heard your testimony, you have experienced this dramatically. There's a little song, I, I was saved when I was a little kid. I, was, I, I thank God for that. Raised in a home where I heard the gospel from the time I was born. And I trusted Christ when I was just a young child. But in Sunday school, I remember learning a little song, a little chorus. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. That's a part of me that never really kind of got that because I was a little kid when I got saved. So I didn't really completely grip that. But some of you, you, you could say, oh yeah, pastor, I've, that is my life. Wow, the change that has happened. All those things I used to say, the things I used to think, the things I used to, the, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore because there's been a great change. <laughs> but we're not perfect. We understand that. We're still sinners. We still struggle with the sinful nature that still is there, the flesh that continues until we're, we're, we're with the Lord. But, boy, the change that has taken place. And that's what this is saying. When you fear the Lord, you walk in His ways. These go hand in hand. The one leads to the next. And the scriptures speak about this over and over again with one voice. The man or woman who trusts in the Lord, who fears him in their heart, will seek to obey and do what he says. Now, what does this look like, practically speaking? Should we publish a list? You know, we should have the Emmanuel Baptist, uh, you know, code. And we'll publish a list of all the do's and the don'ts. Here's the things you should do and here's the things you shouldn't do. Now that you're a Christian, do these things, don't do those things. Anybody in favor? Don't, please don't raise your hand. Anybody in favor of that? No, that's a terrible idea. Okay? It is a terrible idea. What does it look like, though? If we say, if you fear the Lord, you're going to walk in His ways. Well, let me, let me just explain what I think it looks like most of the time. You and I are reading our Bible. Or maybe we're listening to a message. You know, maybe it's a message that I preached or a message from another pastor, another church, another ministry. You know, we get... We have, a, we have an incredible um, abundance of good Christian preaching and programming that we can access through the internet, through radio, television. There's a lot of junk out there too. You've got to be discerning, but there's a lot of good stuff. We have been, so, we, so you're through the week and you're listening to a preacher on the radio or on, your, on the internet, on your phone or something. Or, or you're reading the Bible and you're meditating on it. Or you're in fellowship with another Christian. You're having a conversation with somebody else in the church or a brother or sister in Christ. And you're, you're talking about something. And all of a sudden, it dawns on us that some principle from God's Word goes against the way that we have been thinking or speaking or acting. What does it mean to fear the Lord and walk in His ways? Well, here's what it looks like. We don't dig in our heels and try to defend our behavior. We don't dig in our heels and try to justify why we can continue doing what we've been doing when we realize that God's word says that what we've been doing isn't right. To fear the Lord and walk in his ways, we break. We give in to the simple truth of the scriptures. And we change the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we act to conform with what God's word says. I think this is pretty much what happens day in and day out for those of us who've learned to truly fear the Lord. We can't resist His Word and His Spirit for very long. I mean, there's times where we try, right? We try to just, I just don't want to give up yet. I don't want to give in. I don't want to... But the Spirit wins out. The Word of God wins out in our life, doesn't it? Anybody experience that with me? 
Day in, day out, this is what life is like. Usually multiple times a day I become aware of something that I'm thinking or saying or doing that's not what God wants me to do. And sometimes it's like a lightning bolt out of heaven, and other times it's like, no, I've known this all along. I've just been stubborn. But, this, but the Lord convicts us. He shows us that, and we give in. For those of us who have truly learned to fear the Lord, we can't resist His Word and the Spirit very long. We give in. And we conform our lives to the truth. The fear of the Lord leads us to walk in His ways. That's what the psalmist, that's what the psalmist is speaking of here. So what about you this morning? Have you come to know God? This God who is so awesome and so terrible that grown men fall down as if they were struck dead at the very sight of Him. Do you tremble in your heart, if not on your knees, at the thought that such a holy God will sit in judgment of everything you've ever thought or said or done in your entire life? What is a person to do when we realize that this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-just God is going to evaluate and examine every single thought and word and deed that we have ever committed. We do just what Isaiah did. We confess. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. He confessed his sin. He confessed his unworthiness to stand before a holy God. And in that moment of helplessness, you could go back and read it in Isaiah chapter 6 today. In that moment of helplessness, his sins were taken away. And he was made a servant of God. If you've never before confessed that you're a sinner, if you've never confessed that God would be right to crush you in judgment, that it's time that you admit the truth that is plain to all of us. I'm not saying that we sit in judgment of you. I'm saying we know this of ourselves. When you humble yourself and you confess your sin to God, what you will find is mercy and forgiveness because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could be made righteous and stand before God without fear of condemnation. Trust in Christ and be saved from God's wrath. That's the beginning. And that's really the foundation of everything that Psalm says from here on out. I know we've only gotten to verse 1 and it feels like our time is fast slipping away from us. Don't worry, we're going to get to the rest of the verses here. This, according to verse 1 of Psalm 128, is the precondition This is the the, the qualification necessary to receive blessings from heaven. What is it? Fear Yahweh and walk in His ways. But what are those blessings that the psalmist then tells us are ours? If we fear the Lord and we walk in His ways. Well, there are three kind of distinct categories of blessings. First of all, we have the blessing of the individual. And it's there in verse 2. The blessing of the individual. And and, And this blessing is the satisfaction of meaningful work. Notice what he says there in verse 2. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. Blessed, same word there. And it shall be well with you. It's interesting that both Psalm 127 and 128 speak of toil or labor. They don't use the same uh, root word in Hebrew here, so um, there may be some contrast intended, but I do think that there's certainly some overlap. They both reflect the reality that life in this world involves difficult work. This is a reality of the world in which we live. And we looked at that last week, or maybe it was the week before. Uh, Look back at Genesis chapter 3, the fact that that, that the labor and toil of work was a part of the curse of sin that was brought on by our own sinfulness, by Adam and Eve when they sinned. And so there is that sense in which uh, work is difficult and there is toil and labor. But the interesting thing is in Psalm 127, when it speaks of toil and labor, 
It's speaking of, of, of engaging in toil without giving any consideration to the Lord, without any dependence on God. It's, it's labor and work by ourselves for ourselves. And as a result, it's vain. And it brings nothing but sorrow. But here in this psalm, there's a very different tenor uh, in, in the, with this idea of labor here. Yes, it's hard, difficult, tiring, exhausting labor. But notice what he, how he describes it here. This labor is done in the fear of Yahweh. With an understanding that God is the source of everything good. And so whatever we gain through work is given to us as a reward from God. And then is to be enjoyed as a gift from Him. That knowledge, that, that understanding, is, it transforms the way that we experience work and the fruit of work. Because we fear the Lord, we recognize that, that God is the one who is in it. When I work, when I earn a living, when I, when I, when I uh, receive all of the things that work provides for me and my family, those are gifts from God. But what's more than that, because we, all, we recognize not just fearing the Lord, but walking in His ways. What does that mean? It means that we will be careful to use what we earn for the glory of God and for the service of God. You see that? This changes everything. When you go to work and you work and you get your paycheck, it's not just a, a, a paycheck to provide food for you to eat. I mean, if, if you're doing it apart from God, that's all it is. Go to work, get your money, and eat. That's it. But when you do this with with an understanding that God is the giver of all these good things, that God has given you the job, God is providing for you, and all of the things that you then buy and, and use with all that that you earn, guess what? All those things become gifts from God. Every payday is Christmas, kind of. All those things are gifts from God for you to enjoy. And because you want to use them for Him, all of those things become meaningful and significant. You see, if you're living your life for money or material things, you'll never be satisfied. But if you fear the Lord and you serve Him, then there will be satisfaction knowing that everything He gives you, He gave you because He wants you to enjoy it. So when you enjoy that thing that you have, when you enjoy that home or that car or that food or whatever that thing is that God has blessed you with, guess what? He gave it to you to enjoy so when you enjoy it, all you're doing is fulfilling its purpose. Bringing glory to God. And therefore, there is real satisfaction in those things. This frees you up, by the way, to enjoy life. To enjoy the material things in life. Sometimes, as Christians, we have gotten a wrong mindset about the, the material and physical things of this world. Some Christians say, well, it's all going to burn up anyways. That stuff shouldn't, we shouldn't, I shouldn't enjoy those things because it's all fruitless. It's all pointless. Well, why did God give it to you then? He gave it to you to enjoy. I would say that's actually dismissive of God's good gift. When He gives it to you to enjoy and you don't enjoy it because you say, well, I'm too pious for that. I'm only worried about heaven. But He gave you all this good to enjoy now. See, that part of that is, is fulfilling the purpose for which He created us and all these things. And the psalm here would tell us that we should be happy when we receive these good things after we've worked for them. And it should satisfy us because it's meaningful. This is a blessing from God. And I think we ought to, as Christians, we ought to re-examine our view of things in this world. The things in this world can never be ultimate. But that doesn't mean that they're meaningless. They're gifts from God. We should recognize them that way. I think Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy when he tells him that every food from God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. That's why we pray, that's why we pray before we eat. Not, not because we're worried about choking on our food. Okay. Not, we're not superstitious. We give thanks to God. Why? Because Paul tells Timothy, you should give thanks to God because everything you receive is a gift from Him. So give thanks and then enjoy it. Not as an end in itself. Enjoy it because God gave it to you and He wants you to enjoy it. So everything in life then becomes a means of worshiping and glorifying God because we enjoy it for His glory. 
Boy, there's a lot more to talk about with that, but I better move on. Okay. So we have individual blessing here. But the second blessing that he moves on to pertains not so much the man who fears the Lord per se, but his family. He says, your wife shall be a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Whew, there's an image we get wrong really quickly and easily. And, I, you know, women should be at home barefoot and pregnant, right? Something like that. That's a miss. That's, just so I'm clear, that's a misinterpretation of this. this okay, that's not what he's saying here. Okay. He's not saying the woman's place is at home. Uh, he's not saying anything like that. In fact, well, it's the whole thing. But, but here's the thing. The imagery here of a vine is important. But it's not used, um, the imagery of a vine in the Old Testament is actually not used to speak of fruitfulness. A lot of people read this psalm and they say, well, he says your wife will be like a fruitful vine. So they're saying, what he's saying is your wife will give you lots of children. And that's, that's how people interpret this psalm. But I don't think that's the point here. That may be somewhat included, but actually, if, if, if the vine itself is an image of fruitfulness, why would he call it a fruitful vine? He uses an adjective there to indicate this vine is a fruitful vine. I think the reason is that the vine image is not used for fruitfulness in the Old Testament. It's used for other things. In fact, I'll just give you a list of a few things quickly here. In Genesis 49, it's, it's used to, just, to, to, to signify sweetness. In Judges 9, peace. I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry. Prosperity in Genesis 49, sweetness in Judges 9, and peace in Malachi 3. Song of Solomon 2 uses the vine image to, to, to describe a pleasant fragrance. And Song of Solomon 7 uses the vine image to describe sexual attractiveness. I think all of these things are in view here. Let me give you a summary. James Boyce summarizes it really well in his commentary. He says to com- that, that to come home to a good wife is something like coming home to harvest. It's a time to forget the hard summer work and enjoy God's bounty. What he's saying is when you fear the Lord and you walk in His ways, you come home, and coming home is like enjoying the reward of all that I've worked for. Your wife is there. She is the the blessing that God has given to reward after all the hard work. This is like, okay, now it's time for the harvest. It's going to come home and enjoy all that I've worked for. That's the picture here. The wife here is pictured as the heart, in the heart of your house, not because, you know, the woman's supposed to be at home. That's not the point of what he's saying here. She is pictured in the heart of your house because she is faithful and she is loyal to her husband and her family. In fact, there's an interesting contrast here I wish we could explore more. Proverbs 7 uh, speaks of an adulterous woman who, quote, her feet would not stay at home. That's the description of the adulterous woman. Her feet won't stay at home. Psalm 128 says, no, your wife will be at home. She's faithful. She's loyal. She's an integral part of the success of the family. And so what we have here is the blessing of the family, the comfort of a happy home. There's a second image that's added here in verse 3 to accompany the image of this wife. The wife who's like, the harvest at the end of the summer, coming home and enjoying all the fruit of your labor. The second image in, is children as olive shoots all around the table. It's kind of an interesting picture. He's not talking about growing olive trees and putting them all around the house. In fact, um, to understand this image, you've got to understand a little bit about how, how olive trees grow. Olive trees are, are plants that tend to send up shoots from the same root and so the olive tree will be there in the ground, and all around the olive tree, it will be pushing up shoots all the time, all around it. And at any point in time, uh, if the olive tree is cut down, those shoots can, will grow up and replace that olive tree from the same root. The whole tree can be cut down, and those shoots will grow up and replace the tree. That's the picture that he has here. Your sons will be like the shoots that are coming up, prepared to take over. Prepared to replace you. That's the picture here. Successors, if you will. Growing up, being prepared to take the place of the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. He'll be blessed at home by having children who grow strong around his table. 
who will be worthy successors when he passes away. I think there's something significant here in the image of a family sitting around the table together. Seems like more and more in this day, we don't see families eating together, spending a lot of time with one another. The last couple of months have been an aberration for a lot of people. Very unusual that all of a sudden they had to eat at home. Had to figure out what to do as a family. I told a lot of people that for our family, it wasn't a whole lot different than usual. We normally eat meals together. We normally don't go out to eat a whole lot. So it was kind of like, okay. Yeah, a little different here and there, but our day-to-day, a lot of it was the same. Just at home as a family. We have individual activities. We have individual entertainments. It's what our world, we, we, we just divide. But how much better for us to enjoy the family that God has given us as we watch our children grow up around our table to become godly men and women by His grace. This doesn't happen by accident. It happens or it requires that we be faithful to fear the Lord and walk in His ways. But it also requires His grace. I don't have time to explore that here in this psalm, but I think the imagery here conveys that God's grace is integrally involved here. We know this is true because we all know of, 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 of men and women, families that have loved the Lord and feared the Lord and tried to, tried to walk in His ways, and yet their children have rebelled against that. We know that that happens. And the hearts of parents are broken sometimes. Because we realize this is not entirely in our control. There's not a guarantee here that if you love God, everything's going to turn out okay and your kids are going to be just like you. It's not, it's not what this is about. But it is giving kind of a general principle. God blesses godly homes. It was true in Bible times and it's still true today. Now we don't have time for really any discussion of this final point in the last two verses of the psalm, verses 5 and 6, but here what we see is the blessing of the nation. You see kind of a, it's spiraling outward from, in concentric circles. You have the blessing of the individual, you have the blessing on his family, and you have the blessing on the nation. Because the last two verses talk about the Lord blessing you out of Zion. Jerusalem being uh, blessed, seeing the good of God on Jerusalem all the days of your life. He's talking here about stability. About having a nation that is stable and at peace. And I think that the, the idea here of social stability and lasting peace is firmly grounded on the same principle. If a nation is going to have stability and peace, there must be a commitment to the fear of the Lord and walking in His ways. And increasingly, as a nation uh, uh, refuses to fear the Lord and refuses to honor His ways, that nation experiences less and less of the blessings of stability and peace that God provides. He talks here about seeing your children's children. What a a blessing to be able to see your grandchildren. My parents have said this over and over again, that if they realized how much fun it was to be grandparents, they would have skipped being parents altogether. (laughs) And we laugh at that, that's true. But there really is a sense in which seeing the next generations coming is is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. It ought to be received that way. Let me just say this as I close. I think this is important for us to just consider. I wish we had more time here with this. You should meditate on this a little bit. We like to complain a lot about younger generations. You know, those millennials, if you're a millennial here, just saying, okay? Or the Gen Z, the dreaded next generation that's, coming at, that's come up after the millennials. Some of you guys are in here. We like to complain a lot about these future generations. But the very fact that we have four, if not five generations represented in our little church is an indication of the blessing of God. It is. It's a gift from God. That we get to see our children, our children's children, in some cases, our great-grandchildren. Some of you have the experience of that. These are gifts from God. We should receive them as gifts rather than gripe about them. 
lot, a lot more that could be said. Let me just say this as we close, very, very important. For our part, you know, we look around the world, we look around our society, we see a lot of problems. We see a lot of trouble going on right now. We see a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger. And you say, what can we do? What can we do to stem the tide? Well, I don't know that there's anything we can do to stop these grand things that are happening all over the world and all over our country. But Psalm 128 would would suggest to us that it begins in one place, and that's right here. It begins with me, in my own heart. It begins with me fearing the Lord and walking in His ways. And then everything goes outward from there. The blessing of the individual, the blessing of the family, and the blessing of the nation. But it all starts in the same place. Do we fear the Lord? And are we committed to walking in His ways? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful this morning for the privilege of knowing You. Everything in this psalm is predicated on that. That we have come to know You. Not just know about You. Not just kind of recognize who You are. But the fear of the Lord means that we worship You. We adore You. We submit to You. We recognize that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We cry out to You for forgiveness and mercy. We trust You each day to provide for us and to watch over us, to guide us. Thank You, Lord, that You have allowed us, that You've made a way for us to come to know You, to come into fellowship with You. That is a gift. It is tremendous. All these other blessings flow out of that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have that right orientation in our minds and our hearts and our lives, that we would know you and love you and fear you and then see all of these blessings as what they really are, you pouring out your goodness in our life, that we would rejoice in them, that we would enjoy them, that we would partake in them as good gifts from heaven. And I pray that you would renew our hearts with a determination to fear you and to walk in your ways today. And I pray that if anyone is here this morning in our service or is listening on the internet, Lord, that they would, uh, that, 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 that has never trusted in you, that has never repented of their sins, that has never uh, had the, the life-transforming experience of being saved by believing in Jesus Christ alone, that today they would trust in you, they would cry out to you, they would plead with you for mercy and for forgiveness for their sins, that you would save them. Glorify yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.